Hey guys, welcome back to part two of episode 100 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. I laughed because the minute that I started talking, my cat Cinnamon thought I was talking to her and she ran in from the other room and started like smooching against my legs. So I'm back. I'm sorry I didn't record the second part yesterday. I'm sure none of you were like on tender hooks or anything like that. But after I recorded part one on Saturday evening, my friend Laura and I were talking online who was on episode 95 and we were like, let's go out for a drink. So I hadn't been out properly, properly, like to an actual proper bar since March of 2020. So we went to my favorite bar in Melbourne and it wasn't the best. (laughs) You know, when you go out to realize you just want to be in. So Laura and I spent the last hour of the night out sitting in a bus stop, eating McDonald's, Maccas as it's known in Australia. And then on Sunday, I don't know if it was the combination of alcohol. It seems to always have a depressing effect on me, even though I only had a few drinks. I just felt the flattest, the most anxious I've felt probably in about four years, um, which has kind of been an ongoing thing the last couple of months. And I just wasn't in the mindset to record. And then I was like, oh yeah, because I had a couple of prospective clients like message me um, because of, you know, I'm a copywriter and social media manager. So I kind of felt a little bit better because one of them I was due to speak to about half an hour ago now. And, um, He was all excited and (laughs) I'm just saying half an hour ago because he never called. So the joy of people ghosting when you run your own business. So all in all, I wasn't in a mindset to record this because we're talking about a ton of missing people um, until right in this moment. So I hope that you had a good weekend. One of the perks of this was that I got two new patrons, one of whom came through while I was sitting in the bus stop with Laura eating McDonald's at three o'clock in the morning in a very seedy part of Melbourne. So new patrons, John and Nara, thank you so much for coming on board. Nara, I've messaged you on Patreon about what your request is. Um, Get back to me there. So I just want to say a special shout out to Amy and Neil, both patrons and listeners for your ongoing support of this podcast. So you will expect more voicemails on this episode because this is the hundredth episode and I wanted to hear from my listeners for the first time ever. But that's not just a thing you can do for the hundredth. If you want to leave a voicemail and you've only just got up to this episode and it's too late to leave one for the hundredth, you can leave one anytime on the Anchor app, which is what I use to record this podcast. And if you want to start a podcast, that is the app to use if you're a beginner. I've kind of got so used to it now, it terrifies me to move on to a proper podcasting software. But someone left a like review that was like, there's no production in this. And I was like, yeah, that's the point of it, sweetheart. So yes. <laughs> so if you want to say hi, download the Anchor app anytime, leave a voicemail um, by going to the podcast page. Everyone has seemed to figure it out. So it seems to be quite straightforward and I'll play them on later eps. Love to hear from you, where you're from, what your favorite places that you've gone, your favorite episode, you know, whatever. So I'm going to start part two of episode hundred with playing a voicemail from one of my longest term supporters and early patrons who's still on board, um, Melissa, and she is in Arizona. So here we go. Hi, Felicity. This is Melissa in Arizona. 
Um, I just want to say thank you for everything you do to tell these people's stories. You do a great job covering the ones that the media overlooks or have just forgotten about. And one of the best things to come out of the pandemic is the fact I found your podcast. So while I was stuck at home for the last year, not able to travel, I was listening to your podcast and connecting with your awesome Patreon community. So thanks for everything you do. I was just thinking when I was listening to that, I fucking love you guys so much, all the listeners and stuff. I wish that this was my full-time job, honestly. I get why more and more people are moving away from traditional work or having their own businesses and just getting paid to create their own content and unique stuff. Um, We just need probably about 400 patrons to go and then I can um, retire. (laughs) So where we left off on part one, Adette Hofton, 24-year-old, 23-year-old, 24-year-old Australian, had gone missing when she was living in India in the Himachal Pradesh region, which is up north, kind of borders the Himalayas, and it's very snowy up there. People are drawn by the mystical elements of this part of the mountains, the low cost of living and the ability to go off the grid if you feel like it. And when we go through the cases in this episode you can make up your mind whether or not you think that they met with an accident, something more sinister happened, or they are living up there in the mountains because the local police documents that the Guardian got a hold of estimate that there's seven to 9,000 foreigners living with no visas and no passports up in the mountains of Himachal Pradesh. And I myself think that's probably about right. So I looked up how much things in Himachal Pradesh, particularly Manali um, and Manakaran, because you will notice when we go through these cases, there's a huge hotspot of people going missing from these parts. Manali is where a debt was last known to be as well. So a domestic beer in this part of the world will cost you a little over $1. This is today, so the 90s, even cheaper. And when you're traveling here on a different currency, your money can go a really long way. Unfortunately, that's not the same for people who are living and working there who earn a pittance. You can power an entire apartment and pay for electricity um, for around $16 a month. You can get a one-bedroom apartment in the heart of Manali for $175 a month, which is probably about right because about 10 years ago when I rented an apartment in Siem Reap, Cambodia, I had a massive two-bedroom apartment with two bathrooms. It was the smallest one I could find for 180 US dollars. You can see a new release at the movies for under $2. A reasonable guest house um, for, you know, these days in Manali will set you back about $20 a night. According to makemytrip.com, a three-night stay per person in Manali, including accommodation, return transport, food, and spending money will set you back about $135. Bear in mind, the average income for a local here is around $4,000 a year, and that's average. So a receptionist will only earn around $2,500 US equivalent a year. So remember that these people who live here may see tourists coming with expensive cameras and iPhones and recording equipment and expensive sleeping bags and luggage and all of this stuff. These people are still only as locals earning a small amount. So keep that in mind. Now, Adette Hofton was officially the first foreigner listed as missing in this region in 1991, but you have to presume that going back to the 60s and 70s when it was popular to travel here because 
tourism in Himachal Pradesh hit its peak in the 90s. You have to presume that people were missing for decades before this. I can't find current estimates, but as I've said in part one, some documents say that up to 50 tourists are missing, but the confidential police document that The Guardian got a hold of say that there's around seven to 9,000 living in the hills and that their embassies and home countries have forgotten about them. But they still do continue to find people who have stayed for like 30, 40 years. What is it, Yoke? What's wrong? She's like sniffing up in my face. So some of these people barely have a paragraph. Some aren't listed on official lists online, including whoever Adet Hofton's boyfriend Stefano was, never been able to find him. Um, I've really only included the ones on the list I'm about to go through that have any information out there. And I just kept adding more and adding more and finding more and finding more. So I have included them and organized them into some sort of chronological order. And then each one, because they're usually only a footnote in most articles, like in The Guardian, where it lists them all one after the other. I had to individually go and try to find information on each person. So some people I have photos, some people I have one line, some people like Justin Shetler, which I'll get into, we have half an episode. So I want you to keep in mind also before we get into this that monsoon season in the Pavati Valley where a lot of these tourists have gone missing occurs from July to September. Now rivers swell to tsunamis around this time. Flash floods occur when you're not expecting them and you can be swept away in a blink of an eye and this is an important thing to keep in mind. So we're going to start in 1992 and a 30-year-old Swiss tourist called Marianne here disappeared in the Manakaran Valley. She was last seen, which will become a common theme as we get into this, with a sadhu, which is, you know, a holy man, whether or not they're real or not. This sadhu's name was Ganga Ram. This was in October 1992, and she was last seen with this sadhu in a Manakaran temple. Um, the Swiss embassy at Delhi, you know, was it was reported to them it was investigated and Marianne was never seen again. That is all we have. No photo, no nothing. May 27th, 1995, a Dutch tourist called Marcel Timmer Arens vanished in the Himachal Pradesh region. He is listed on kind of missing persons sites in, you know, the Netherlands. He disappeared on May 27th, 1995, which means he's been missing for 26 years he was 24 at the time he was missing and he would be 50 now if he was still alive. He is white, male and 190 centimetres, which is probably about six foot three. His brother travelled over to try to find him. He went to the city of Kulu, which is very central to where a lot of people have passed through to try to find him. A skeleton was found in this region, which they thought was Marcel Timmons, um, Timmers, and the skeleton ended up not being him um, and they've never found him. An age progression has been made and I'll post that on the website and in the Patreon. July 1995, an Irish traveller, when I say traveller, it's not like a lot of you in the UK probably think I'm talking about like a gypsy or a Roma. I'm talking about like a tourist. An Irish tourist called Paul Roach, he was 28. He vanished from the Himachal Pradesh region in July 1995. Paul was 5 foot 10. He had dark brown hair, blue eyes, and he was pretty athletic because he was pretty fit. 
and liked climbing and hiking a lot. He was a geologist from Wexford in Ireland, according to the Irish Times. Paul left Ireland in September 1994 to trek around Nepal, India and Pakistan. It was a bit different back then. He travelled by himself and he kept contact regularly with back home until the July of 1995 where he completely dropped off the grid and has never been found. His last traveller's checks, because remember in the 90s a lot of people travelled with traveller's checks, um, was cashed before he went missing and there was still £800 of uncashed checks that were never cashed. That indicates to me that something happened, you know, to Paul, um, whether or not he fell off a mountain, like some of the police believe, or otherwise. His family from Ireland searched for him for years to no avail. If you have any information about the disappearance of Paul Roach, contact the Department of Foreign Affairs, Interpol, or email the web, webmaster of missing.ie, which is the official Missing Persons Island page. August 25th, 1995. An American couple who were in Manali, where Adele Hofton was last seen, um, they, her, na- her name was Ashley Palumbo and her partner, Tyler Mondlock, they disappeared from Manali completely. They just dropped off the grid after they'd cashed a traveller's cheque for about $150, which would have taken you a long way, you know, back in the day. They were staying at a hotel in Manali um, and they had mentioned in their forms, which you legally have to fill out what your ongoing plans are after that and when you intend on leaving. They left the hotel and they disappeared. They were found drowned by a swollen river in early 1996. They are still listed on a lot of um, kind of articles about this, but it seems like the journalists never like tried to look up what happened to them. And I was able to find that they were found and they'd obviously fallen into like a swollen river. This is a very, very rugged, treacherous terrain up here. Um, I don't think the average person could fully comprehend how difficult it would be. October 1995, um, Australian Greg John Powell disappeared from the Manakaran area. He had left ongoing like he'd left ongoing plans, but he never like met up for them. His brother tried to find him, you know, in 1996. Um, and he believed that his brother was kidnapped and murdered. And that is all there is on Greg Powell. There's, there's nothing else. And I, our IS and Australian have never heard of him and only ever seen him on the Australian missing persons register list of people who are missing overseas. And it's like a byline. So now I'm going to play a voicemail because I've got so many. I didn't realize how many I'd get and I was stoked from one of my earliest patrons and listeners who talked me up to everyone who I love, Tony from Washington. Hi, Felicity. This is Tony from Olympia, Washington, United States. Sorry, I'm a little late on the voicemail. I didn't want to download another fucking app, but I did it because I want to tell you how much I love your podcast and your work, and I just appreciate so much all of the heart and effort and research you have put in the last 18 months. It's made such a huge difference for the families of the victims and also everyone listening. We get to hear these personal stories and take journeys around the world. That's just a gift that you're giving us. So thank you. And as long as you're creating, I will be supporting. I miss you on Instagram though. I really do. Um, my favorite episodes are Cruise Ship Mysteries. Love them. And Al Kite. That was terrifying. Um, I can't believe I didn't know about that story. 
I got to wrap this up because I only have a minute. So thank you. And I look forward to the next episode. Thank you so much, Tony. Maybe one day I'll get Instagram back, but because I manage different clients for a living and stuff, it all just became, you know, so much. We'll see. But the old kite case is one of you guys' favorites of the last hundred episodes I've done. That case, I think about it probably daily and still think that whoever that is, I have a feeling they'll find him. So also, Tony, I made a connection later on with you in one of these cases. <laughs> June 1996, Heinz Rug, who was a Swiss tourist, vanished from the village of Kothi um, just outside of Manali, also a debt. A number of others have so far disappeared from there. He was on a trip with his wife and children for sightseeing and vanished, and that is all the information that is out there. Remember, this was the 90s, but you'll see even in the 2000s, it's kind of very sketchy, some of them, the details. August 23rd, 1996, Ian Mogford, who was 21, he was British. He went to the University of Bristol and he vanished from Manali as well. He was five foot ten. He had blonde hair, blue eyes, and I do have a picture of him. I find his case very interesting, even though there's not much information about it. He had gone to India for a trip with his girlfriend backpacking. They'd arrived shortly before his disappearance and he'd left her alone in one of the villages to go trekking in the Himachal Pradesh region of the Himalayas. That to me is quite strange to leave your girlfriend alone in a country like India, um, especially where there's been people reported missing and it's not necessarily somewhere you'd leave your girlfriend. I don't know if they had a fight, if she just didn't want to go trekking, I don't know. But on the 20th of August, 1996, he called his girlfriend. Three days later after that, while he was trekking, he spoke to his parents back home. He sounded totally normal and happy on both occasions. And Ian, after that, was never heard from again. He's listed on the missingpeople.org.uk website, which is a great source of reference. You can report any sightings of Ian or any information you have about Ian Mogfed to them. Reference number 97000047. May 1997. Ardavan Tehazeda. Ardavan Tehazeda. He was a Canadian graduate. He vanished in the May of 1997. Um, that is all we know about him, other than the fact that his mother travelled to the Pravati Valley to try to find him to no avail. And I have no source of reference on the village he was last seen in, anything like that. But again and again, the same places seem to come up. The Pravati Valley, uh, Manakaran, the city of Kothi, which is kind of like one of the most spiritual places on the planet, they believe, Kulu and Manali. May 1999, the brink of a new millennium. Martin de Bruin, who came from the Netherlands, he was 21 years old. He went missing and he's listed on a few Dutch missing person sites as well. He was 22, 21 or 22 sources differ. He would be around 43 now. He was white, male, 188 centimetres, so probably six foot two, weighed around 75 kilos, and I have a picture of him, and it's black and white, and that is it. April 2000, um, a Russian economist, Alexei Ivanov, who was 33 at the time, disappeared from the Pavardia Valley, and that is all we have on him as well. July 2000, just a couple of months later, 
two German tourists who were hiking in the Himachal Pradesh region of India were sleeping in their tent one night when they were shot in the tent. Jorge Wyrock, who was 26, he was killed instantly. His friend, who he was backpacking with, Adrian Mayer-Tash, who was 28, escaped, but he was shot four times in the legs. I had no, um, there's no update on whether or not they ever found the people, but I don't believe they did. And no eyewitnesses came forward to the incident. One month later, a British civil engineer, Martin Young, who was 32, his Spanish girlfriend, Maria Gironis, who was 34, and her 14-year-old son, Cristobal, were sleeping in their tent in the Himachal Pradesh region, although it doesn't specify where. And they were set upon, as it's put, and beaten to death. Um, So Martin Young survived and his girlfriend and her son died. Their killers were never found and... I kind of wonder what the deal is with that, if you kind of get my drift. Nothing further, you know, has come up. That year, a skeleton, which was still wrapped in its sleeping bag, was identified as a missing Israeli military pilot who had gone missing quite a while before, Nadav Minsar. His passport was found having been sold on the black market in Manali. 2001, an Italian, Alessandra Verdi, who was 32, had moved to the Himachal Pradesh region um, six years before. She rented a house in Manali and she really got into the whole sadhu holy man thing. Um, She smoked a lot of hash with a sadhu called Baba Mast Ram, um, who kind of was the sadhu of a nearby temple in a small village called Vashisht. Um, Now, the sadhu ultimately would write to her parents in 2001 saying that she had disappeared owing him money and he didn't know where she was. Um, Superintendent Gopal, who I talked about on a previous, the previous episode, he's the dude who inherited the entire kind of missing tourists in this region file. And from what I can find, he's no longer in the superintendent role. He said about Alessandra, quote, the Italian embassy contacted us last August. And when we searched her house, we found bloodstains on the bed sheets. We also found a picture of her with Baba Master Ram. We must have talked to dozens of foreign foreign overstayers up there and they all told us different stories. Most of them claimed never to have known her when clearly they did, unquote. Alessandra's parents flew to India and Superintendent Gopal had a massive file of pictures of unidentified bodies that had been found in the region, whether they'd been murdered, had an accident, drowned, fallen off a cliff. Um, they had to look at 27 gruesome photos of corpses being decomposed in various states of decomposition. The majority of them were killed in freak accidents, but her mother and father were able to identify one of them as Alessandra. She had been found on the banks of the Beast River um, that year, and Baba Master Ram was subsequently arrested. And as of 2002, quote, the investigation awaits a DNA analysis of his blood. Since then, no further media follow-up at all, so I don't know what became of that. But that's another case where the sadhus, I think, are very dodgy, and we'll get into a big case shortly, which has a lot of information. Um, I just think people really get sucked into a lot of these people. I don't, 
I don't believe anyone's a holy man in the world. I don't believe anyone is. Um, I don't believe the Pope is. I don't believe anyone is. But in this particular region, I believe that a lot of them are just con artists. And it's unfortunate because you've got tourists who are under the influence of drugs being told a lot of gibberish and bullshit about, you know, how enlightened they could be if they gave these people money and things like that. And that's that's all I'm saying. Enlightenment comes from within, not from some random holy man. May 2003, an Israeli named Guy Dowdy had disappeared on the 1st of May. This is kind of a bit eerie. He was trekking with his girlfriend in a forest above Manali again. He injured his leg while trekking. They had to camp that night out in the open. They didn't have any tent or anything like that because they were only doing a day trip. Ultimately, the next day, his girlfriend set out to get help and had to leave him behind because he injured his leg so badly. When she got help and returned to the spot where she had left Guy, Guy was gone. There was no evidence of a struggle, no blood, no evidence of an animal attack, nothing. The police asked his girlfriend to take a polygraph test and she passed. And since then, no further follow-up on if they ever found Guy or if he was ever linked to be one of these corpses. But in that instance, I think with his leg and how damaged it was, I have a feeling that Guy kind of succumbed to something bad. I also want to keep in, just kind of go back a little bit. So the German hikers who were killed in their tent, that was monsoon season. Um, quite a lot of these are monsoon season. Martin de Bruin was going into monsoon season. Um, that one was just monsoon season. Ian Mogford was monsoon season. Heinz Rug was monsoon season. Um, the American couple who disappeared and were found drowned by a swollen river, that was monsoon season. Irishman Paul Roach, who vanished, was monsoon season. Um, Marcel Timmer Arentz was going into monsoon season when he vanished. So you kind of get the picture of how many of these could have just been, you know, a terrible accident. So Guy was never found. October 2003, um, British backpacker Anna Bartlett, who was 25 at the time, she came to Kulu, which is another name in the Himachal Pradesh region that comes up again and again. It's the centre of their hash Charis grow operation, really. We talked about it a bit on part one. I basically mapped like Kulu to Manali and from what I could find, it's only like 30 kilometres away from each other. She came to Kulu in search of what many people come to this area for, peace and tranquility. And according to The Guardian, the world's strongest hash. She was only there for a week and her battered body was washed up by a river. This was not monsoon season. So basically her history was really interesting. Um, and I think she had some drug issues. Three months earlier from when she came to India, she had been released from a prison in the United Arab Emirates. She had served two and a half years of a 25-year sentence for drug smuggling. She was ultimately pardoned on the grounds of ill health and deported to the UK. Now, usually that means that you can't return to that place again. You get a ban either for life or a certain amount of years, but you're on parole essentially like in the UK and you're not meant to travel anywhere else. But Anna did not stay long at her home in Southend, which I've been to, which is in Essex. So she gave an interview to a tabloid magazine in Southend about a conviction and her time in prison. She said, quote, what I did was selfish and evil. I'm just pleased to be alive. I can't wait to get on a bus and go for long walks in the countryside. 
But that did not last because a few weeks later, Anna was in Kulu, India. She should have just stayed in the UK, we can all say this, and got her life together and got on a good path. But she was in search of more drugs. And you would think that the shock of doing how two and a half years in a Arab Emirates prison would have shocked that out of her, but I'm not going to hold that against her because this was quite a long time ago. Ultimately, Anna's body would be found in a river, um, washed up, basically. There's a tiny little photo of Anna that I will put up on the website and in the Patreon. Basically, when they investigated it, they were able to find that she had been smoking a shitload of hash and marijuana with these local tourists and a guy that ran like a local guest house and a bar. Um, She had ultimately, it seemed, died of a drug overdose, according to them. They had put her body in the river to make it look like an accident. But the last update to it was that the police were questioning that because she had been bashed about the head. So whether or not these guys set about her to rape her and they killed her, I'm not entirely sure. It's a horrible end to a horrible story, you know, and a struggle that she'd obviously struggled with drugs for a long time. Um, And there's been no update since. And that was in October 2003. You'll notice, which is a common thread on this podcast, the media doesn't give a fuck if you're in another country because it didn't happen in theirs. So these people, which is, you know, the point of the whole podcast, The media in their home country doesn't care because it didn't happen there. And the media in the actual country generally doesn't care because they don't want their tourism affected. December 2005, Daniel Mountwitten, who held dual Australian and Israeli passports, but he had been living in Israel for quite a number of years. So he hadn't spent a whole lot of time in Australia. He was 23. He was born in 1982 and he was last seen on the 5th of August 2005. This is in monsoon season. He had a slim build, brown eyes, brown hair and olive complexion. He was kind of the male equivalent of Odette in a way um, because I've got a picture of him. He's got like dreads, a very similar look to Odette. I will put the pictures up. He disappeared from his guest house where he was sharing a room with another um, traveller in the village of Chalal in the Pavadi Valley. On August 5th, 2005, Daniel Mountwitten left his room in search of a meal. Um, he left behind his belongings and he has never been seen again. That is very reminiscent of the Ryan Tchaikovsky case we covered, who was an American who vanished in Laos, popped out to get some food. And that was the end of that. Daniel is listed on the Australian Missing Persons Register because of his dual citizenship. If you have information that may assist police to locate Daniel Mountwitten, please call Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 from inside Australia. And in the same vein, I also found a tiny little note in an article um, that was basically, I believe, in the Tribune India that said that on the exact same day that Daniel Mountwitten disappeared, a Japanese tourist called Kajuya Ueno, she was 32, um, was reported missing on the same day from a village called Mandi in Himachal Pradesh. So the same village that Daniel disappeared from. July 21st, 2009, the start of monsoon season. Amachai Steinmetz, who was, he held famous, um, similar dual citizenship to Daniel earlier. He held both US and Israeli passports 
Amichai was a practicing Jew. He always observed the Sabbath. He was trekking through Himachal Pradesh um, and he met up with another Israeli friend that he met there. And they were going to trek from their village where they were staying, which is Kir Ganga, which has come up before, um, to the forests of Banbuni. Now, just quickly, Kir Ganga has been brought up previously on the first episode because that is where the Guardian journalists saw, you know, what seems to be tourists overstaying in the previous one where they had doors slammed in their faces and they were told to piss off by people. That's the hamlet of Kir Ganga in the Pavadi Valley. So according to Amachai's friend, soon after they began doing this trek, they separated. Not sure why. Maybe they had a fight. Maybe they wanted to do different ones. I don't think they were super tight friends from what I can find. And they agreed to meet in Bunbuni doing different routes. Um, and then they were going to go back to Kiaganga, you know, the same evening. Amachai never made it. His friend says he didn't meet him at Bunbuni and they never made it back to Kiaganga. Amachai Steinmetz has been missing since July 21st, 2009, and I have one picture of him. I believe his mother did quite a lot to try to find him. Also, then we're going to 2011, and I don't have a month on this, unfortunately, to Israeli trekkers, because Israelis make up quite a lot of the tourists in this region. We, they went missing in the Pavadi Valley as well. Dania Dekel and Daniel Dekel were with a tour of eight who lost their way due to heavy rain, um, forcing the tour to take shelter in a small village. Then the two Israeli trekkers kind of went out on their own um, from Kassel to Grahan, two different villages. They were told kind of not to do that because I believe this is probably monsoon season as well and because they were on a private trekking kind of tour. The two went missing and I can't find anything else about that. August 2013, French hikers Francois Xavier Camille, 21, and Valentin Gorges, 20, disappeared somewhere in the Dulada Ranges. That came up on the first episode, um, similar kind of area of Himachal Pradesh. The authorities looked extensively but suspended their operations. Um, in 2016, there was a tiny note that said that two skeletons were found at a height of 4,342 metres and they believed that they were the two French hikers. Now we start to get into cases where there's a little bit more information, whether or not that's because they're more recent or because they got a little bit more kind of media attention, I guess, one of whom will be a major kind of player in this episode. August 2015, Polish tourist Bruno Muszelik, he vanished from Manali on August 8th, 2015. He was 24 years old. He's 186 centimetres tall, probably about six foot one with green eyes. His last Facebook post said that he was going to go trekking in the Pavadi Valley on August 9th. This is the middle of monsoon season. He was staying in a guest house in Manali um, and on August 8th, he planned to hire a tent and more trekking gear from the town and was going to take the bus to the Pavadi Valley on the morning of August the 9th. According to the police, he did not contact anybody from August 8th onwards um, and he never got on that bus. His return flight to Poland was booked for August 23rd um, from Delhi and he did not make that flight either. Now, Bruno's dad did not fucking mess around when it came to trying to find his son. He 
was like the police are not doing shit. They just kind of write it off. He hired an ex-Masada agent to try to track Bruno. Um, they did a massive manhunt of the region. He even took it to the High Court of Himachal Pradesh to say that the cops had not done enough or taken Bruno's disappearance seriously. And in that, he also brought up the whole point of this double episode that not only did they not take Bruno's disappearance seriously, but they did not take any foreigners' disappearances in this region seriously either. Bruno's family have a Facebook page for him, and if you have any information on his whereabouts, contact them on missingbruno2015 at gmail.com. Now, one of the things I didn't mention about this area of Himachal Pradesh, and particularly the Pavati Valley, is that in the rest of the country, hotel and guesthouse owners are required by law to log their patrons into an online database to say how long they're going to be there for, where they're staying, and where their next port of call is. But they have to do this in the Pavati Valley in Himachal Pradesh, but particularly in the Pavati Valley. The, ma- the vast majority of guest houses just let people come and go, you know, without recording this. And that's where I'm going to play the dulcet Canadian tones of patron Neil who left a voicemail. He said, you know, he had to gargle with maple syrup before he left it. (laughs) There you go. Hi, Felicity. It's Neil from Canada. As promised, recording a message just to say, first of all, thank you so much for all the great podcasts. I can't imagine the amount of research and work that you put in to entertain all of us out here in podland. So congratulations on your 100th episode. Look after yourself. And we look forward to at least a hundred more. Thanks so much. August 2016, Justin Shetler went missing um, from the Himachal Pradesh region. We know the most about him of maybe anyone, including Odette, on this episode. And it could have been its own episode. But as it takes place in this region, it makes sense to be on episode 100. He went missing around about the 21st of August 2016 and his story has been covered extensively because he was quite a well-known travel blogger at the time. Justin's story is covered in the amazing piece by one of my favourite resources I use for this podcast, Outside Online, and the title of the article is Lost in the Valley of Death by Harley Rustad in 2018. Justin was 35 years old and I briefly mentioned him in Ryan Chambers' episode way back on episode 5 but I'm going into it at length now. He was an experienced outdoorsman from a very young age. He hailed from Sarasota, Florida, and he packed in the corporate life at a very young age, made his money and got out because by 35, he was retired. He kept a blog called The Adventures of Justin. It is still up at adventuresofjustin.com. His Instagram on the same handle is still up and his YouTube, which I have looked at extensively. And if you want to get away from it all just for a little bit, go to Adventures of Justin on Instagram and just have a look through his pictures because it really kind of centered me. When Justin was 16, his mother withdrew him from high school and enrolled him in a wilderness awareness school instead. This is a nature-based educational program um, located near Seattle, Washington. Um, And basically, this teaches people the stuff or children or high school students the skills that I think they probably need more. I think listener Tony, who I played on a voicemail, um, I think she has her little ones in like a part-time nursery school that is like this, which I think is so important. 
when I was in year 10, I dropped out of maths because I hated it at school. I was told by my teacher, Miss Chris, that's the short version of her name, that I wouldn't be able to add up a shopping list. And to this day, I have never used Pythagoras' theory or sin, cause and tan. So suck it, Miss Chris. Now, Justin worked in a variety of jobs suited to his natural interests, tour guiding and things but then he was sucked into the corporate world. He worked for a tech startup with a friend in Miami, Florida, but this life was not fulfilling to Justin, which I totally understand. He retired at the age of 32. He made his money. I believe he probably made quite a lot of it and he left then to travel full-time. And again, this is all on his Instagram, YouTube, um, travel blog, adventuresofjustin.com. On his blog, he wrote, quote, I am running from a life that isn't authentic. I'm running away from monotony and towards novelty, towards wonder, awe, and the things that make me feel vibrantly alive. He went through South America on his motorbike. He had an amazing, oh, I'm trying to think of what it's called. Um, I really want to say it. It's like, here we go. It's, I don't know. Oh, a Royal Enfield motorbike. So my grandfather had one of these in Melbourne um, because I believe they're made in Australia. It's like an old school bike similar to the one that Steve McQueen rides in The Great Escape. And my grandfather, we have a photo of him and my gran on this Royal Enfield um, in the 19, early 1940s in South Melbourne. And it just brought me back um, to that picture and had to go find it. And it's just an amazing old school bike. There's something fucking so beautiful about it. And his is like a forest green. I will put it up, um, but it's also on the Instagram adventures of Justin. Um, so he went through South America on this and Asia. He actually ended up in Nepal around the same time that Dalia Yehia was there trying to make a difference after the Nepal earthquake. And you got to wonder if they crossed paths at some point. Outside Online wrote, quote, Others were drawn to what his adventures represented. Alexander was a minimalist, but not rejectionist. His smartphone didn't disgust him. It enabled him to tell his story, unquote. Just quickly, you may notice that he's referred to as Alexander. He basically dropped his surname Shetla and went by Justin Alexander. But for the sake of making sense on this, I'm going to go with just Justin Shetla if I say it. Now, I love that part about him that he knew he needed technology to kind of be a travel blogger. Like he didn't turn his nose up like a really deranged hippie, uh, that kind of thing. It's really hard to find him talking. I knew I'd eventually I'd be able to find a clip of his voice. It took me a while. I saw him interviewed on YouTube finally. His YouTube, he doesn't talk a lot on it. I noticed that he doesn't make himself the central focal point of something. He has, you know, related music playing over the top of montages of clips that he's taken and things like that. So finally, I found one on a YouTube channel called Tangentially Speaking Clips. And it's Justin talking about becoming a monk. That's kind of like the title of it. So I'm going to play you a clip of that just so you can hear his voice because we don't have the voice of anyone else, you know, on this two-parter. And you were a monk. Yeah, um, it's, uh, the story is uh, in 2007, uh, end of 2006 was the first time I came solo to Thailand. And um, it's actually, the story is a little bit more about how I was adopted into a Thai family than right. the monk thing. I didn't right. come here to become a monk and I wasn't coming right. here to speak, to seek spirituality or anything. But I had previously spent the summer in Nepal and really, really loved 
the the form of Buddhism that I saw there up in the mountains, like uh, visiting monasteries and hanging out with these very peaceful red-robed monks and sitting up in the mornings while they're reading their mantras by mm. the candle. And right. um, I had a, a, a big curiosity about uh, that form of Buddhism. And I went back to the U.S. and studied a bunch and was, um, you know, was reading a lot of books and learning a lot and doing a lot of meditation. When I got to Thailand... I was kickboxing and I broke my foot in my first fights and I wasn't able to train anymore and I was kind of bummed out about it because that's why I came here. And uh, ended up meeting a Thai guy who's my age and um, he was like, well, I know, I know you're, you're bummed out because you can't train, but I'm, I'm going to take a bus a few hours away out into rural you know, province down south of Chiang Mai and visit my family. If you want to see what real Thai life is like, this would be a great opportunity. And oh, I said, well, yeah. hell yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I did that and, um, and showed up around the end of 2006 in like December. And I can speak enough Thai to be charming. You know, I think that there's a lot to that. I can be, you know, being very polite, being able to tell them that their food is delicious. And, you know, I think there's some other tricks, um, not tricks, but habits that, that uh, help, that really help garnering the friendship of locals but uh his family really really liked me and one, uh, one night we're sitting around as we would in the, the by a fire in the backyard and my grandfather and grandmother and uncle and auntie and a couple cousins and brother and mom and dad and i were all sitting around a fire grilling pork and drinking leo beers and i was asking him about uh, thai buddhism and he said that traditionally all thai males become a monk it's it's like uh and what it is is good luck for the family it's kind of like good karma right. i was told that if the son becomes a monk then the mother and father are assured to go to heaven so it's like a big deal and i asked him i said well have you done that have you or noom done this i said no you know it's not as popular anymore and I just don't really want to and i was like man if that if that was a part of my culture i would definitely do that because that would be so interesting um very curious about it and that was about that was the end of the conversation and you know no one else in the family understood what i was saying because i don't speak english and the next morning he came up to me and said uh I had to talk to mom and dad about about what you said last night and they said they want to adopt you and then you can become a monk and then there'll be a blessing on the family and I'm like <laughs> and it'll get me whoa. and my brother out of it I was like whoa man uh, you can't really say no to that um, and, uh, <laughs> that's hilarious so there's something I really love about the way that Justin talks. Um, I have worked or dealt with quite a lot of travel bloggers in my time as a travel writer. And I can say with 100% assurance that most of them do not care about where they are. There's not much dug below the surface. Most of them do it for clicks to their website, for visits, for money. Um, some of the experiences that they've had, it has really angered me speaking to them, how much it just doesn't matter to them. Justin was not like that. His travel blog is totally basic. Um, it's like an early, like almost looks like a GeoCities one. Um, he really immersed himself in it. And that's why I wanted to show you like how he talked about that experience. Another reason that I know that Justin was a good guy is because looking at his videos on YouTube and his Instagram, I have seen, you know, right back to like 2014, the number of animals that he rescued and how he handled animals. Um, there's one where he, there's a video where he saved a little puppy that was, he found while he was out on a hike in the wilderness. And it looked like someone had taken it from its mum. It was so young, left it out there. Um, and it was shaking because it was cold and it was raining and he had it like all wrapped up, you know, in his jacket. 
And then it had him kind of doing daily updates on how the puppy is and how he was fattening it up with milk and things like that. And I was just like, yeah, I like this guy. I know, I know he's a good guy, like at his core. Then Justin, after that interview, he discovered India and like Odette Hofton, he fell in love with everything about it. Much of his Instagram is India, um, the Holy Festival um, with the colours, all of that different stuff, um, really immersing himself in the culture. He ultimately ended up in the village of Kiaganga again, which the Guardian went to and believes that quite a lot of tourists that are off the grid are there. And this is where he fatefully met a sadhu, another holy man called Sat Narayan Rawat. Now, I'm going to refer to him as Rawat to make it easier. His whole body was covered in these massive lumps, one of those really weird, you know, rare abnormalities of your skin. Um, it's kind of like massive lymphedemas everywhere. It was really kind of disfiguring to him. Now, his backstory is that he claimed that he had been abandoned when he was a child. Um, it's all in the Outside Online article um, that his wife and family had also abandoned him in Nepal. Now, obviously, Justin was not told like the full extent because he was born with this condition. But Justin was under the presumption that Rawat had these massive lumps of flesh around his joints because he had practiced such rigorous yoga for such a long time and it had taken, you know, a toll on his joints. So this guy is a con artist. Everything he says is a lie. He's not a holy man. He's not a sadhu. Most people in the area don't consider him one. They refer to him as business bubba. Um, they believe that everything he does is just for money. One traveler said about him after Justin went missing, quote, some bubbers are very charming and outgoing, but this bubba was rough and crude. Maybe he was a great person, but there was something that was very hard and very aggressive with his spirit, unquote. Now, Rawat also told Justin that he'd cut his penis off in order to ensure that he never felt lust. Um, and Justin bought into all of these lies. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. I don't know if you can just cut your dick off and then continue on living without medical treatment. And I doubt this is the kind of guy that would get medical treatment. I also doubt it's the kind of guy that would cut his dick off because he just doesn't seem like the type. I'm sure he's sucking in women all over the place or was back then still. Four days before he vanished, Justin had blogged on adventuresofjustin.com about his plans to meditate, practice yoga, and hike with this sadhu or holy man on a journey of sorts that they were going to take. His final line on his blog is, I should return mid-September or so. If I'm not back by then, don't look for me, unquote. Now, friends back home in the States were disturbed by the nature of his last post. As much as they believed that Justin wrote it, it just seemed, you know, like he was being sucked in by this guy who was clearly, obviously to everyone else, a con artist. Justin talks in the last blog about what he packed in his backpack. He took a kilo of rice, some oats, nuts, raisins, tea, sugar and flour. He literally wore the clothes on his back. He took a sleeping bag a machete, a few other essentials, but there was no tent and no stove. They were just going to rough it because apparently this holy man is able to walk on water and, you know, survive no matter what environment the environment throws at him. He took his flute staff, which you will see him playing on his YouTube, as well as his Instagram as well, which is quite a long instrument. He took this trip with this Rawat, the Sadhu Rawat, 
Um, and according to another traveler who had done this particular hike, it takes you up to about 13,500 feet. At the top, there's no shelter, no trees, nothing like that. Um, and it's like unbearable cold. Also, bear in mind that this, again, is monsoon season and it's also crazy weather, freezing cold. Um, and this person was really kind of like, are you sure you're going to do that? But Justin was optimistic. Outside online, quote, the day after he drove in the, into the Pavati Valley, he posted on Facebook his plan to hike into the upper valley and live for weeks in a cave, emulating the lifestyle of the sadhus. It's something I've been called to do for years now, not to renounce the world or become enlightened, but to wander alone in these majestic Himalaya. P.S. If I get into trouble or begin to starve, I can hike down to a village and get help or eat. I won't die. Unquote. Famous last words. He then vanished somewhere in the same Pavati Valley. Now, there is actually the last photo taken of Justin with this sadhu reward taken by a fellow traveller before they set off. And in it, Justin is like wrapped up in like a massive, you know, that meme with the Lenny Kravitz scarf where it's like, it's this cold. It's literally like that. Um, and the sadhu is way younger than what I thought he was. I honestly thought he'd be wearing like a toga or something that would show, you know, his relinquish he's relinquished his possessions um but in it he's actually like <laughs> i don't know how to explain this um he's wearing like a um i'm looking at it now like a soft shell you know jacket ski jacket bright red um i've you know have one of these um brand tracky pants tracksuit pants or joggers he's carrying like the wood flute thing that's Justin's. Justin's got like a beanie on. He's in that massive, like almost scarf thing wrapped around his whole body. He just doesn't, unless this is how the sadhu is dressed now and they're all, you know, modern and stuff. Like it looks like he's like doing an ad for like Anaconda or Kathmandu or something. So the Pavati Valley where they were heading into is where gods are said to have meditated for thousands, for around 3,000 years. Um, and a lot of the spiritual spiritually curious, I'm having difficulty speaking today, um, are very drawn to this area. It may not surprise you to know that Justin did not return. By the end of September, he was due to be back by now and should have been in contact. His mum, Suzanne, who was on the other side of the world living in Portland, Oregon, became very concerned. Now, she made contact with other men that Justin had met along the way. And these guys are really good guys. One of them is called Lee. He was a Frenchman that Justin had met. Obviously, Justin meant a lot to these people because Lee hiked three hours back from where he was to the village of Kiaganga, where Justin had set off from. And what did he find in the village of Kiaganga? Well, there was Sadhu Rawat in his hut, chilling out, you know, leeching people of money. Lee and several others confronted the sadhu and the sadhu became angry as a result. His response to where the fuck's Justin is that, quote unquote, Justin is crazy, unquote. Now, Rawat, his story changed about three times um, during the next certain months or years. He claimed that Justin had left him um, on the hike after they met some other trekkers near Mantalai Lake and that Justin headed higher up to further up into the Pavati Valley with them and that Rawat had just returned to Kiaganga. Lee did not believe this story, so he filed a police report at the local police station. 
Now, I don't think this would have gotten out or got much media if Justin hadn't, you know, been interviewed for different publications and had this blog and had a lot of followers. Like, I think he had like 11,000 followers at the time. He's got a lot more, obviously, now. So Justin's mum, Suzanne, flew to India because she expected the worst. She filed a official missing persons report because it had to be someone that was related to him at the district police offices, police office in the city of Kulu, um, which opens up in the into the Pavati Valley. It's at the mouth of the Pavati Valley. Now, as a result of this missing persons report, Sadhu Rawat was arrested and brought to confront, you know, Justin's mum. And this time his story was different again. He gave a different version of what happened at this Mantalai Lake um, than what he had told the Frenchman Lee in Kiaganga. He said that a third person who was a porter who helped you go up and down, you know, they're locals who are familiar with the terrain and, you know, carry your stuff and things like that. A, a porter that he had hired had come with them on this trip to Mantalai. This porter had never been mentioned before, but all of a sudden he was. The Sadhu Rawat said that the last time he saw Justin was after he, Justin and the porter had stopped for tea on their way down from Mantalai Lake, which is a holy lake. He said the porter, he sent the porter ahead to begin preparing their meal for that night. Justin followed and Sadhu Rawat said that his knees were hurting, so he held back for a bit. He's going to use his disability to his advantage um, in this story. He said when he finally joined the porter um, at their next stop, Justin had not arrived and he said that was the last anyone saw of Justin. He said rather than reporting him missing to the police, he and the porter just went back to Kiaganga, said nothing and got on with their lives. Again, story has changed significantly and a new person is brought into this. Then three Indian hikers who had done the same trip came forward with some information. They said on September 3rd they had seen Justin, Sado Rawat and the porter near the murky pools at Mantalai Lake and they had actually taken a picture with Justin. They said that when they came across Justin, the Sado and the porter, the Sado was arguing with Justin when they approached them. And Justin told them that he was hungry, tired, and he wanted to leave. He wanted to descend the mountain and leave. So this story contradicted both of Rawat's accounts, but it actually puts the porter there. So maybe there is an additional person. Justin was searched for extensively along the Pavati River, and when monsoon rain happens, this area is an absolute death trap. Now, Justin's bamboo flute was found. It was found stuck upright in the ground, just up from the waters of the Pavati um, River. Nearby, they also found his black waterproof backpack cover, his grey scarf, and a red butane lighter, which in the Outside Online article, it goes into how another traveller, a Russian, had given that to him as like a parting gift. Now, if you're wondering what happened with the Sadhu and what's happening now, because this was like 2016, um, I've got some news. So the Sadhu ultimately hanged himself in custody. Um, he killed himself and that is the end of that. The last person who knew anything um, is gone. The porter's story matched up with his, so nothing's happened with his Justin Shetler has been presumed dead. No conclusive proof has been found that he is alive. Now, I will say that some people, including the local police who understand the impact of shame 
on, you know, Buddhists or Hindus. They believe that the suicide doesn't necessarily mean that he had killed Justin and the shame at that. It was the shame at being arrested, you know, um, not that he did anything because I think he felt like the jig was up. Um, Justin's iPhone was never found and the porter from the Sado's new version of events aligned, you know, with the Sado Rewats. So that is the end of Justin Shetler's story, unfortunately. Um, and now I'm going to play a voicemail from patron and listener Stephanie from Louisiana. Hi, Felicity. This is Stephanie LaRavia from Louisiana, USA. And I just want to say I absolutely love your podcast. So please keep up the great work. If I could do my own, it would be just like yours. You are the only podcast out there that actually does this on missing persons from abroad or traveling abroad. And I just really enjoy and look forward to every new podcast you do. Thanks, Stephanie. So I found many instances of tourists overstaying their travel documents and just staying here for long periods of time. So there was a French national who was found a few years ago in the, a tiny village in Kulu who had just been there for 30 years without visas, passports, <laughs> everything had lapsed. And we know that the way that they get by is by bartering hash and relying on other people. There was an Italian national who was found in 2011 in this region who was staying, everything had lapsed and he'd just arrived, loved it. They leave their lives behind, don't tell anyone, and he'd been there for 15 years. But with these cases, I divide them into really four separate potential outcomes. The first one is that they had a tragic accident, that there was a flash flood, something like that, even if it's not monsoon season, that they fell over, that they hurt themselves, um, that they succumbed to the elements, they were attacked by an animal, and it just looks, you know, bad because they wouldn't have a massive conspiracy here because they're so reliant on tourism. Everyone's reliant on tourism here, and I don't know how they've fared the last, you know, year and a half. The next one is that someone, they died as a result of an interaction with someone or something dodgy happened to them, like with the Sado, if you think that with Justin, things like that. The next one is that they're staying up in these hills, like a lot of people suspect, and they've just left their lives behind and are staying long term. And the last one is that they actually didn't disappear in the Himachal Pradesh region, that they were in another part of India, you know, and they've, it's just been marked as they're missing in these valleys. But as you'll notice, most of the cases are like people who had plans, they were staying at a guest house, they never checked out, that kind of thing. We would know if they crossed into another country, you know, using their passports. So we have to presume that most of them disappeared from this region, I, like I have to. So the disappearances of tourists aren't all people, in particular women, have to worry about in Himachal Pradesh and in the Pavati Valley. Incidents of rape were on the rise, according to an article by the Hill Post India in 2018. And I'm going to read to you from that article, quote, over a dozen foreigners are still missing from Kulu, while a man from Israel was killed in Bashani village in 2007, and a woman from Russia was murdered in Manakaran village in 2008. 
On June 2007, a South Korean woman was raped in Kulu and the accused was acquitted in 2010. Another woman from Australia was raped by her Facebook Indian friend at Kassol Village in May 2012. Last week on June 2nd, a Japanese woman was raped by a taxi driver. Though the accused was arrested, but the incident sent shockwaves among the foreigners. It's disgusting. Women travellers are not safe here. Police security should be tightened up, even during night time, said Annalie, a woman tourist from the UK. She is in Manali since Sunday. It's the beginning of foreign tourist season and hundreds of foreigners are already camping here, unquote. Now, it may seem like the trend is that a lot of tourists are going missing because it seems like a lot. But if you look at it from a percentage wise, it's like a tiny, you know, fraction. I've got the statistics just for Kulu, um, the village of Kulu, to give you an idea of the number of foreigners that visit villages in this region. Um, And in 2018, it was like almost 10,000 visitors, whether domestic or international. But as most professionals who have looked at these cases kind of point out, because these people are locals who know the area, a lot of these people could have met with terrible accidents as a result of not hiring a professional porter or trekker or, you know, trek guide or anything like that and not joining like a tour. Tourists get very kind of, I can do this on my own kind of thing, but they don't know the topography, as someone said on part one. And I think back to the Chris and Lisanne episode in Panama, how they didn't take a tour guide and how I personally think that would have made all the difference. The Times of India, quote, hiring a professional trek guide is mandatory for exploring the Pavati Valley or for that matter, any valley in Himachal, unless you are a local. Most of the tourists who have dared to venture into the valley have lost their path and landed up in deep gorges. The trails of the valley puzzle, even a trained guide at times, let alone Sorry, the trails of the valley puzzle even a trained guide at times, let alone a newbie trekker, unquote. Now, I also found a number of other like tips from the Times of India on, you know, how to stay safe in this area. They include staying away from drug users and refraining from getting yourself involved in that in the Pavati Valley or buying drugs because, you know, that can lead to, you know, some element of danger from drug smugglers or anything like that. Don't go trekking at night um, and hire a guide in during the day um, and explore the valley during the daytime. Um, avoid traveling during monsoon season, July to September, as landslides are common at this time. The soil gets very slippery from the rain and the forests are infested with snakes and other harmful creatures, unquote. So, I guess you're wondering what I think to wrap up. In regards to Adet's case, I do believe that Adet was last in Manali. And I think if she had moved on, her history shows that she stayed in contact with her family and that was how she operated. No one was making her leave India, anything like that. So there was no reason for her to just disappear, you know, on her life. Her family were cool with her living there. Um, I don't at all believe she vanished for no reason. I do believe she was last in Manali. She hadn't updated her address details with her family and she loved getting those care packages from her family. I do believe she's dead and she was dead from around the time her family stopped hearing from her and the packages started being returned to sender, if not a bit earlier. I don't think Odette Hofton is one of the tourists overstaying up in that area. 
the missing piece of this puzzle with Odette for me is the mention of the boyfriend and how he went missing and then no further mention of that is that's why I'd love to talk to one of Odette's brothers um, to kind of fill in that bit because if you think that both of them disappeared together that sounds more like they were out and about hiking up a mountain or on a trek or something and just met with a terrible accident like the previous American couple that I talked about who were found dead in the Swollen River. I don't know if Adette's one of the, you know, people whose bodies were recovered and she was just never identified. I do feel like they would have made that connection. Um, then part of me thinks that something sinister was going on, that that's what Odette was, you know, doing, that she was making her money through drugs because most people up here like smoking a bit of hash, like no judgment, whatever, like if it's part of the lifestyle. But when you start getting into that stuff, you don't know who you're dealing with. You're not from there. It can look like a tourist is encroaching on, you know, the hash grow in the Pavati Valley or Manali or, you know, Kulu or whatever. Um, but then again, you know, because the two of them vanished, would it be like you're knocking off two people who had wronged you or something like that? It's just, it's just really hard to say. And I wish the family had got answers, you know, before the mum Marie died. The only other one I have kind of some feelings about is Justin Shetler, obviously. Um, while I do think that Sadhu was dodgy as, and I do think he probably like was taking money from Justin or robbing him at some point, I don't fully believe that he did anything to him. And I base that on physicality. Looking at Justin, there are photos. He is so muscular. Like he's, it's amazing. He looks like, like a bodybuilder in some pictures. And comparing him and his build to the Sadhu, I just can't think that he would overpower him unless he was kind of weakened. He'd also made it, you know, weeks by the time the Indian tourists saw them in the valley where he was supposedly arguing with the Sadhu. But if that is one of the last times they were seen, that does call into question, you know, what the fuck's going on? Because Justin wanted to leave and the Sadhu was arguing with him. So he's taken control of the situation and he's trying to keep him up there. And why is he trying to keep him up there? Justin's belongings that he'd left kind of stashed at a guest house back in Kiaganga were found, as was his beautiful motorbike. So it's not like they sold those or anything like that. His story changing, the only thing that really changes is that he adds the porter in. And that's only because he's speaking to police and it's more of an official, he needs to give an actual answer because they're police. When he gives Lee, the Frenchman, the story, it's that they were at this Mantelai Lake, this holy lake. Um, I don't firmly believe that Justin made his way like down the mountain and then um, Rawat stayed behind because his ankles hurt or anything. I just don't in my heart of hearts feel that there was necessarily something sinister about it. Justin could have met, you know, um, with a terrible accident. It was um, monsoon season. He could have fallen into a river. Maybe he just hasn't been discovered yet. His belongings being found kind of near the river indicate to me that that's what happened um, because his flute was kind of sticking in the ground, which if you see the picture of him and Rawat, that's how they kind of stored it. Um, maybe he was standing by the river and washing himself or wetting his face or something and something happened. But then equally, it could be someone's, you know, <laughs> like putting that there to like lead police to think that's what happened. I don't know. I think this guy is just over 
overwhelmingly dodgy, but I don't know if he did that because of that. I don't know why he killed himself. Maybe because he knew the jig was up in terms of being able to screw people over because once he got out, it would get around that he's more dodgy than people already think he is and then he's not going to make any money from anyone. Just stay away if you go to India because these holy men or sadhus or bubbers are a dime a dozen. And I listened back to the Ryan Chambers episode um, that I did way back on episode five and a bubba features in that or a sadhu heavily as well. If you remember, Ryan was in Rishikesh and he and a guy from his ashram went to see this holy man. When they got home from it, Ryan said that they had left because something strange had happened and he started to feel unsafe there or a bit weird. And that's when Ryan's behavior started to change. And just hours after that, he was telling his friend who still, they still had like six months of travel to go that he wanted to go back to Australia. And his friend John was like, you know, if you need to do that, man, I'll help you book a trip. And then he was like, no, no, I'm okay. And I started to kind of re-listening to that, have a lot more thoughts about that and what could have potentially happened there. And my immediate thought is that he tried something sexual or he got it in Ryan's head because Ryan could have been smoking hash with them or whatever. I think that's a common thing, especially in Rishikesh um, or the Himachal Pradesh region that Ryan, that the Sado kind of got in his head, hey, your friend, you know, I'm a holy man and I see things that, you know, are going on and your friend John that you're backpacking with, you should leave him and you should go on your own spiritual quest, that kind of thing. And it, John hadn't gone with him to this guy, but I don't think I said on the first episode, I'd be interested to know if the other backpacker had been questioned who had gone with Ryan to this Sado and then back to the ashram to find out, you know, what what had been said. That's why I really want to speak to Jock and Dyer Chambers, Ryan's parents, um, and I really ultimately want to, you know, do that this year. Last year was a bad time in Australia, um, but I want to get around to that because the, the India disappearances, you know, fascinate me. I've done Felix Dahl, Ryan Chambers, um, different Goa deaths as well on the Felix Dahl episode, this one, Justin, Odette, and there's something very sinister at play, you know, in a lot of these areas. But I think with Justin and with Ryan, there's something about this, these holy men. Um, I don't know if they're murderers or if they're just long-term con artists, but, you know, just stay away from them. Um, So I honestly, I honestly don't know. I'd be interested to know what you guys think in terms of most of these cases, in particular, Odette Hofton and Justin Shetler, whether you think both of them were accidents or anything like that. I want you to kind of look at the pictures I'll put up on their website and also the Patreon to see the terrain of this. This is not for beginners. I would not be doing it myself, especially not in monsoon season where the mud is so, you know, slippery and there's so many flash floods and you could be stuck in a gorge and then a flash flood happens or you could be swept into a flooded river and dragged, you know, with all these currents and rips. Yeah, I just... I don't know, but I do believe that the confidential police document that they were able to get a hold of at The Guardian, I do believe that their estimate is right. Between 7,000 and 9,000 have overstayed and are there. Whether or not they're listed by their parents or people back home have kind of got the idea that they've bugged out and they've disappeared and they've gone off the grid, I don't know. Um... Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap up this episode with my final voicemail I received. Listener Corinne, another Canadian. Love them. 
Hey Felicity and my unknown passage family, just wanted to say hi. This is a uh, longtime listener, Corrine from Welland, Ontario, uh, Canada, just outside of Niagara Falls. Um, definitely recommend this podcast to all my friends. Uh, not really my family because they think I'm weird, but uh, we love it. Me and my uh, man listen to it all the time. Can't wait for episode 100. So happy for you, Felicity. You've done such a great job. And uh, every week I get to go on a little vacation through your stories. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Keep it up. And uh, sending you lots of love from Canada. Also, keep an eye out on your mailbox because uh, there may be something coming from two pugs and a cat all the way uh, across the ocean there to you. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, Yoko. Bye, Cinnamon. Visit the website at unknownpassagepodcast.com. Leave a rating or review if you enjoy the show. Become a patron on the Patreon app or at links through the website. There's tiers for all kinds of people, um, all kinds of budgets. And one-off donations, which are super helpful um, to the PayPal at unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. Case suggestions to unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.